Hello and welcome to Dateline Hamden on WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, your host, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our communities tick. Well, Hamden and New Haven both have mayoral election campaigns this year. One for Democratic primary, mayoral nomination, and one for the general election. In our studio today, we have a return visit from one of our favorite guests, Lauren Garrett, the mayor of Hamden in her first term. She's running for a second term. She faces both a primary challenge and general election challenge. Lauren, welcome back to WNHA. So nice to see you. Good to see you too, Paul. Thank you. And before we get on to the politics, congratulations on your daughter graduating Hampton High School. I said you got a good social media feed. That was those some good pictures of Thank the graduation. You. What yeah. was it what was it like going there as both a parent and the mayor to a graduation? So usually you don't see that crossroad where um, you know, you're both mom and mayor. Um, <laughs> but that really lined up perfectly on Tuesday. Do you ever get mixed up? Like, do you ever tell her she has to, like, vote yes on something rather than, like, do her homework? Uh, no, not really, no. Um, but it was really cool because Tuesday was also my birthday. Oh, happy and birthday. so my birthday present was to give my daughter her diploma. Oh, you gave her the diploma? I did, yes. What did she say? Was she embarrassed about mom? Or was no, she like... no, she, um, she, she knew this was going to happen for a while. Um, we didn't know it was going to line up on my birthday until, I guess, a month or two out. But um, it was just amazing. All right. That's very nice. So that's a good part. Tell me overall yes. now. That leads into my first question. You're, you're finishing up your, or well, you're in the midst of your first two-year term as mayor. That's right. You tried twice to run for it. You're part of a group in Hamden who said Hamden needs to change. Yes. So you had a whole slate of people who won all these races. Yeah. Obviously more diverse government. How's that going? Is it what you thought? Um, so yes and no. Um, we have a really great team that we're working with. Um, I work very well with the council. And so we're able to get so much work done. Um, but it, it's, it, there are some differences, you know, uh, there's more cleanup than I expected. Um, you know, every new mayor says it. Well, they always discover there's $20 million you didn't thought was there. Yeah. No, it's, it's not so much that, um, it's, it's more that, uh, Hamden didn't really have a lot of policies set up. And so we're constantly finding, um, ways that we need, we, we account, we find a problem and then we say, okay, so what's the policy? And then there isn't one. And then not only do we have to fix an issue, but we also have to develop policies so that we don't see these things in the future. What would be examples? Financial oversight? So we updated our fiscal policies and procedures manual for the first time in 30 years. Fiscal policies and procedural manual? I know there was such a thing. There is. There should be at least. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now this is included with our town's budget. Um, CDBG was another issue that's that community we, development block grants we still get from the federal right. government where they, you could do certain kinds of activities right. that serve low-income people. That's correct. Thank you for doing that. Um, so uh, that the block grant um, was a little bit of a mess, and we had to. I actually asked our auditor to audit the grant because um, I wanted to have a handle on the problem. What, what do you mean? There's a problem. So every year you got to decide we're getting this amount of money. In, in block grants, we're going to divide among these people. What was the policy that needed to be fixed? Well, so the problem actually was that um, we weren't spending down funds. Oh. And so we had a, a lot of money sitting around that needed to get spent. Like how much money? Uh, over a million dollars. And so um, it was a couple years worth of monies, uh, including the COVID money that was not getting spent. And so um, we had to do some amendments to um, to the budgets so that we could actually spend it um, in a way that was good for the community. But we also had to put procedures and policies in place 
for that as well. Well, like in other words, that you'd be alerted if it's not spent or no. Well, so you or that you oversight to the agencies you give the money to. So you get flags if you don't spend the money, and so the money wasn't being spent. We already knew that. Um, It was it was more a problem of not having. gone out to bid for contractors that would do the work for the the home rehabilitations. Um, We had to go out to bid for some sidewalk repairs. You can do some infrastructure within the community. So there were a lot of issues that um, just came up uh, when we did the audit uh, that were very helpful. Does that mean that there wasn't bidding, that you needed a policy that says if you got a block grant, you got to put a sidewalk or a home rehab to bid? No. So we already know that we have to go out to bid for things. It's just that the town had not done that in a very long time. And so we started going out to bid, writing contracts for the different contractors that, that we needed to do the work. Um, it was, we, we have a really good team. I guess what I'm a little confused, I know this is getting a little bit in the weeds. What yeah. was the policy? So you didn't, I didn't hear anything that was a new policy. You're we, just saying carry wrote, out what existed policy. No, we had, there was no policy. We had to write the policy for CDBG for the community development block grant. That included bidding or? Um, well, that is already procurement policy. It's just that the way that you have to have your staff set up to provide checks and balances for the way that the money is spent. Okay, for how it's oversight. Yes. That is a big issue. I mean, I, I, this could be weird because of vision from New Haven. I always feel like you come across stuff 10 or 15 years after we did because your town got greater diversity over the years before we did. Your city became more urban in the in the southern half. So we had all those issues about CB, CDBG oversight with the agencies like around 2000. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe that's just New Haven view. You could look different from Hamden. I am i don't know. I All I know is that we have been writing a lot of policies and um, we have a really great team that is um, trying to make Hamden better. So um, in our engineering department, our town engineer, Stephen White, has put together a complete streets policy uh, so that we can address all of the traffic calming measures and in a very done? deliberate way. The policy has passed and now we're implementing it, which is really exciting. That's a biggie. It is. People really care about that a lot. I remember Nur- Grace Flood, before she moved over to cover New Haven, was writing a lot about that with Stephen White and yes. all that. And so you're, you're happy with your first term with the team. You feel you've been able to write fundamental policies in addition to fixing problems. Yes. Are those the highlights? Is anything big stand out to you about your first term? Um, so we have gotten amazing support from the state and federal government in terms of bringing money into the town. So uh, we're at around $30 million that we brought in from the state and federal government. And this is money that can um, complete. Is this mostly federal pandemic relief ARPA money? No, no, that that doesn't include ARPA money. This is uh, money for our firehouse in Southern Hamden, $8.6 million. Uh, $3.8 million for uh, what's called CMAC, which is uh, replacing. uh, No, 3.8. And that's um, for for street street lights, um, Mm -hmm. the stoplights, traffic signals. Um, Oh, signals, okay. Right. So. The town has to replace those, so it's really nice when we get um, some money from the state to help make that happen. Um, we got money uh, for some improvements at the Keith Community Center, $1.3 million, uh, money for bridge repair and replacement from Lotsip. Um, this is this is a lot of money that comes into the town, but a lot of these grants are reimbursement grants, which means that if we don't have a healthy fund balance, we can't even do the project. Does that mean you have to put money out and they give it back after you spend it? Yes. So they, you need the cash available. Right. And so in the past, Hamden has had to borrow money 
just mm-hmm. to do these reimbursement projects. And we're in we're not in that position anymore. We have a healthy fund balance. It's fourteen million dollars right now and growing. Well, it started because the town um, put together a um, a deficit mitigation plan that has grown into a fund balance restoration plan. And what the town did was borrow money um, in it was a, a debt refunding. Uh, and so we front loaded savings and back loaded the debt, um, which is not advisable, but in mm-hmm. this case it has worked out because we've had balanced budgets. All right. Lauren Garrett, first term as Mayor Hamden, telling us how it's going here on Dateline Hamden and uh, running for election. Daniel Hunt writes in, when it, and this is something your opponent for Democratic nomination, Walter Morton, criticized. said, when are you going to make the announcement for police chief and assistant fire chief? So Morton said, why has it taken a year to pick a new police chief? Um, well, we've had a lot of interviews, and I think that there are some good candidates that I think would make for a good deputy chief. Mm. Um, and so, uh, right now it's all about communicating with the legislative council to make sure that we're in agreement on, um, police chief deputy, you need a deep of oh, deputy fire chief. Uh, so we, um, uh, we need a police chief and, um, and then we can also hire a deputy police chief. Oh. Uh, so you're saying the people have gotten so far, you don't think are people I, you want for chief, you want from deputy chief. So I think that chief Wider is doing a really good job. I think that he's very well known in the community and he is uh, very honest and um, has really nice integrity that mm-hmm. is refreshing to see. And a lot of the other candidates that I've seen have been, um, I, I think, good for a deputy chief position. And so why not make Wider the chief? Well, as I said, uh, I'm in communication with the legislative council um, to bring consensus, consensus. So are you proposing that, but they're not supporting that? They I, want to change? Um, I haven't proposed anything yet. And is that because before you propose, you want to see if there's support on the council so you don't have a fight? Um, I have a really good relationship with the <laughs> legislative council and I'd like to continue that. So I'll tell you what sounds like off the off <laughs> to my ears, and maybe you don't want to say because obviously you have to get your work done. You can't say certain things. Sound to me like you're saying you'd like to pick Wider, but you don't have enough support yet on the council. I... Um, I I think that Wider is doing a very good job. <laughs> okay, I think we got where we're going on that one. So the other main critique from Walter Morton was, and is that, so is your answer that before you make a major decision, you want to have consensus? Um, in anything that I do, I brief the legislative council leadership um, to make sure that we are all in agreement and on the right track. I don't try to make unilateral decisions. Um, I think it's really important that um, you know we, I have input Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, we have some good council members that provide excellent input. So Daniel Hunt says, well, what about the deputy chief of police position? Is that because you want to have a chief first before you have a deputy to know who they'd work with? Yes. Okay. And Daniel, thank you for the questions. Walter Morton's other main point he made was um, that ARPA, the money, the money we got federal pandemic relief, got $18 million, $16 million going to a new community center. He argued that it makes sense to use that some money to boost Keefe more, the existing center, and rather than building a new one on possibly still polluted land, um, use that money to attack chronic absenteeism, a zoning upgrade, and to encourage mixed development at Hamden Plaza a lot. That's a lot there. That's a lot. What do you so, think about all that? So let's talk about Keefe Community Center for a second. Um, this is a building that is very old, has not received significant updates in a very long time. Mm, neglected maintenance? Um, 
Yes, but it's just also it's um, it goes beyond neglected maintenance. It's uh, it hasn't um, it hasn't had um, a lot of maintenance for decades. Um, we've got a lot of original materials in there, and um, we how old is it? Oh gosh, I I couldn't tell you that off the top of my head. Um, this this building is on a lot that isn't that big. And so we've really outgrown our footprint there. Mm. We don't have a gymnasium that is municipally run. Municipally run. Mm -hmm. um, it is a, a, a meeting room. It's called the gym, and it's just really a meeting room. At Keefe. At Keefe. Um, it's, it's a large meeting room, but it's not a gymnasium. Um, our community services and youth services runs out of that building. But how do you have youth services... Um, programming without having a place, a fun place for kids to meet. Um, mm. So I think that we can do so much more for our seniors, for our youth, for the people of Hamden, if we have an adequate community center. Okay. And then uh, what about chronic absenteeism? He says it's grown from 13 to 34% in Hamden schools. If that's accurate, he says New Haven, at least they're going door to door, canvassing, looking for the kids. And he feels more could be done with that. Any thoughts on that? Well, so that's not a proposal that was sent to the Legislative Council or to myself when we were putting together the ARPA budget. Uh, and um, there is a lot of ESSERS money that ran through the schools. and um, it, they ESSERS could've... is the pandemic relief that was targeted just toward education, right? Yes. Thank you for explaining these But I will never, to, to my dying day, be able to know what ESSERS stands for without looking it up. It is... ARPA, we know, America yeah. Rescue Plan Act. But some of those acronyms, they just start saying ESSER all the time at school board meeting and no one stops to say ESSER, what it means. So I, I think it starts off with elementary Education. and secondary oh. schools. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, there was a lot <laughs> so of... So was there enough ESSER money and it just that proposal didn't come up? You know, millions of dollars of ESSERs ran through the school district. And, um, you know, if this was something that they wanted to target, they could have done so with And are you saying money. it's not your role as the mayor to... to suggest what the board should do you should have them take the leadership on it um like they're saying the school board had this esther money they could have done that that's not the mayor's office so as mayor i sit ex officio on the board of education um but you know this is this was also federal money that ran through the schools and um and so there are people on the board of education who if this was their primary concern and they wanted to do something about it they're, that they're in the perfect place to do something about it. Okay, I got that. And what about a zoning upgrade? Do you think there needs to be more density in town, a new plan, less parking? Of course, we're doing it right now. We have our planning and zoning department, our our town planner who um, also lives in Hamden, Eugene Lifshitz. He's working on updating our, our zoning regulations. All right. And what about overall with crying? It's so interesting. You became mayor at this time when the world was... Starting the pandemic, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're here in the pandemic. We had Black Lives Matter protests. We are really trying to figure out public safety in a new way. And you were part of a coalition coming new to government with ideas from the outside yeah. about how policing should evolve. Do you see it the way you did when you took over? What's that evolution been like? So I, um, the way that I uh, approach being mayor is that I think it's very important for all of my employees to be treated well and to also have the resources that they need to do their job. And so I'll say that that is probably where I have um, 
evolved the most in that um, I recognize that the police department needs cars that have air conditioning in them. <laughs> um, no one o- thinks about that when we're arguing about the big issue. Odometers that function. Um, mm-hmm. I recognize that we need to pay for training. We need to pay for um, tools that police officers use to solve crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that that's probably um, you know where I see myself um, working with the police department the most. Um, I have a great relationship with our police chief, and um, we work together every day. So in other words, is your evolution, because you came in more on the big issues, like saying you want alternatives, right, to arrests and having, I don't know if you're going to do a crisis intervention team or not, but more community policing, that kind of stuff, right? Am I, am I yes. wrong? Yes. And are you saying that as mayor, you've had brought to your attention more the nitty gritty, less discussed aspects of government, of getting basic things paid for and upgraded so that people could do the job well? Is that sort of what I'm hearing? So I wouldn't say that... Um it's it's changed from one thing to another thing. It's more that um, it's just another thing to consider. All right. Mm-hmm. Lauren Garrett, what, what about affordable housing? That's a big issue everywhere in America. It's a big issue everywhere in Connecticut. It's a big issue in New Haven and Hamden. How about your thinking on that now that you've been in charge? what where are you, How are you viewing that issue, the best way to tackle it, and how's that going? I think that we need to provide more housing. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have a warming center that's open, obviously, during the winter months. And um, we had um, clients coming into our warming center who had vouchers for housing and could not find a place to live. Mm. Um, We had people coming in to warm up at night and then would go out to work in the morning. So this is not just a Hamden problem. It's not just a Connecticut problem. It's a national problem that we don't have enough affordable housing. And I want to be, um, I want our municipality, Hamden, to help solve the problem. And um, so we have some affordable housing projects that are in the works. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one over on State Street that um, is going to come before planning and zoning. Um, They have just presented to the Legislative Council um, their proposal. So, you know, I, I, um, in as mayor, um, and with our planning and zoning department, I want to make sure that, um, we are not putting up roadblocks that we are helping them. Um, are you in the build, build, build school? I, uh, it, so mostly, yes. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's really I love important that debate because there's no left or right, no who wants affordable housing right. or not. It's all you're kind of predicting which economic theory works in practice. That if you just keep building more, that'll give more supply, it'll lower demand so that even if you're building expensive apartments, other rents will go down. And then other people say that's theory, but in practice, you're kind of gentrifying, building up for wealthier people to come pushing out the poor. So, so I said for the most part when I answered you, and that's exactly why. I think it's really important that we have a lot of affordable housing that we're offering. And so the development on State Street is all affordable mm-hmm. at uh, 60% AMI. All right, and that's area media income. But don't ask me ESSER, even though you told me I can get started with elementary and secondary. Okay, that's that's a good start, but there's still the SER. Good. Chris Ashley says the mayor mentioned securing grant funds for our town. Is any of that going toward improving public safety? Thank you for the question. Oh, that's a great question. So um, we actually put in a um, an application to our federal government, um, and it's being supported by Rosa DeLauro, um, who is awesome. And it is for $5.3 million to update um, police radios and police communication. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so th- that is incredibly helpful for them. Are they using like all the walkie-talkies or? They- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've got the the old outdated um, walkie-talkies, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, radios. How about overall? How do you feel being mayor now? You know, we only got a couple minutes left. I mean, how, what did you think it was going to be like coming in, and how's it feel now, Lauren? It feels amazing. I love doing this work. I um, it's it's so gratifying to be able to help people, to be able to bring back some really great success for Hamden. Um, our town is improving. Our financial situation is improving. It's, um, we've been, our, our bond reading has improved by both, um, S and P and Fitch. When I started, we had a negative outlook and now it's moved from negative to stable and now positive. And so, um, independent agencies are taking a look at Hamden and saying, we're going in the right direction. Stacy Brody, it's election time. Um, someone needs a reminder of the I person. People say the truth. Okay, just someone else. Stacy Brody thinks that it's not going as well as, as you're saying. So I guess that's what you're going to be putting before the voters. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, and if the independent bond rating agencies say that it's, it's going in the right direction, um, that's a really credible source. <laughs> okay. Any final words, uh, Lauren? And thank you for joining us on Dateline Hamden. Um, thank you for having me. I'd love to come back. And there's also, uh, there's also a, um, uh, a, um, Republican runner for mayor, right? Yes. And who's that? Um, I don't name drop my opponents. Interesting. Okay. Lauren Gare. And finally, what's the difference being a candidate and being in government? Uh, well, when you're a candidate, you have a lot of time on your hands to run for office. When you're <laughs> the mayor, you're very busy um, doing your job and you have a little bit less time to run for office. Well, I appreciate that you found the time to come into WNHH where you're always welcome and we love having you on the show. Thank you, Paul. And we're going to take a little break here with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free. And we're going to go back with State Rep. Roland Lamar, who's going to tell us a story about how many years it takes sometimes to pass important legislation that can make our streets safer. I'm going to give away, I'm going to do a, a, a give away the ending. It, it does have a happy ending, the bill passed. So sit tight. We'll be back with you in five minutes at WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.
Three. Point. Welcome back to Dateline New Haven. This is Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make New Haven tick. There was a big headline involving a very not interesting sounding bill that actually is going to make a huge difference but has a boring title. And it's the Vision Zero bill, which has a longer name. What's the name? Recommendations. Of the Vision Zero Council. So it's a law that's actually called the Recommendations of the Vision Zero Council. But what it really means is that after many years of fighting and New Haveners going up to Hartford and people getting killed on the road, we now have a bill that's going to bring automated red light and speed cameras to the streets of New Haven and do a lot of things that people want to make Steve she's safer. We're going to make it happen. State Rep. Roland Lamar from New Haven has led that charge. He's the head of the Transportation Committee. He's put this bill in year after year, and it just passed. And we're going to talk to him about how that happened, what that means for how we govern. Roland Lamar, thanks for coming. Today. Thank you for having me. Was Paul. that accurate, everything I said? Yes. Including, so you guys don't think about, like, the Biden administration had the Inflation Reduction Act, which had nothing to do with inflation. It didn't reduce inflation. But it was catchy. Or bring jobs back or build, rebuild America. Yeah, we're constrained by a legislative dictum that uh, our legislative commissioner's office, which is a nonpartisan uh agency within the general assembly they craft the bill titles we but can't you say okay don't take a side don't do marketing but can you say at least tell us what the bill is could they call it like the safe streets bill or something i mean we could have i guess advocates myself included could have uh you know <laughs> pretended it was called something else and or is it a way to make it less controversial by having no one pay attention who might not like it because you got this boring name well, I'm pretty sure people were paying attention to this one. <laughs> and they were paying attention to this one. So, uh, well, I'm going to ask you to get close to the mic. First of all, how did it feel? After how many years was it you've been pushing this bill? I, I think if we want to be honest about how a, a, this bill, specifically this policy, uh, germinated and then became law, you have to start way back in 2006. Uh, there's a nascent movement in the country uh, that started to take hold in New Haven uh, around complete streets policies, about road safety, about uh, redesigning our traffic systems, our street systems. Uh, to be multi-use, to be protective of all users. Uh, in other words, streets aren't just for cars. That's right. That's right. They're, they're, these aren't throughways. These are the building blocks of neighborhoods. Um, I think that's a direct quote I gave the New York Times in 2006 on it. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and Aaron Sturgis Pascal. I'm sorry, they're not throughways. They're they're the building blocks of our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how you get to school. It's how you get to the grocery store. It's how you get to work on a daily basis. Some people utilize them for driving cars, but in a city like New Haven. Uh, a lot of people are just walking to and from the places that they need to go on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like respecting that reality and the, the really remarkable amount of traffic violence that occurs on our roadways 
uh, wouldn't be tolerated in any other sphere of our society. Um, mm. And so starting in, in 2006 with uh, Alder Aaron Sturgis Pascal, uh, she and I introduced the Complete Streets Ordinance. We began that process here in New Haven of sort of looking at that. We had a Complete Streets Design Manual, um, and legislatively that was the direction that we took at that time. Uh, there was also a push at the time. Uh, Mayor Stefano helped to lead uh, the original push, which was to look at automated traffic enforcement. Mm. Um, that, I think, was complicated because it was both a safety-related issue but also a revenue-generated conversation about how much money uh, we could generate if we moved in that direction. And people, and so people say, well, then you're going to have an incentive to give people things that don't deserve it, so therefore it's a money grab. I always thought, why don't you guys just admit it and say, yes, we want to take in money because people are driving like absolute maniacs, and if we can catch one-tenth of them, it'd be great to bring money in on that while we also try to deter them from doing it and then have some money to rebuild our streets in safe ways. And, and, and exactly, Paul, that's what led to a 12-year fight on this. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think looking at the ex examples from across the country, the programs that are designed as revenue enhancements for local municipalities are the ones that become deeply unpopular. They're the ones that get removed. They're the ones but that... But then they get mad at you for taxing people. I guess they say uh, it's another form of tax. That, that, well, but that's it's a tax exactly on right. people running red lights and running over kids. Yeah, and, but there are also circumstances across the country that we wanted to protect against, right? Because you saw local communities that would decrease the yellow light time, uh, oh. essentially, sort of like the uh, the old Bugs Bunny cartoons oh. or the Dukes of Hazard, right, where the local officers would pull down a 35-mile-hour speed zone uh, and turn it into a 25. Or like, also like, in some communities, especially black communities, the cops come in and try to write tickets for stuff to get you on little violations to jam you up. That's so right. So, so that. people are worried about like yeah. aggressive level of policing that happens with this. Um, and then there were some real, real concerns about how this technology had been utilized, how it had been operationalized against communities of color um, in, across the country. And I think those were very real concerns that were always in the backdrop of this and conversation. And just so people know what we're talking about, are we mostly talking about cameras here that go on traffic lights and either catch you running a light or speeding? And it, we used to have to be careful to talk about which one we're talking about, but the bill you pass is going to allow both kinds, right? Yes. The vision, the right. So... Like you said, I introduced this bill in 2011 for the first time in the General Assembly. I get elected in 2010. In 2011, I introduced uh, this as, as um, a package of bills that I introduced as a new legislator. It got through the Transportation Committee at the time, Planning and Development, and the Finance Committee. So I was feeling really good about it. Um, generally, I did not have the support on the floor. Running into the concerns of how are communities going to utilize this? Is it going to be a moneymaker for communities? Is this going to be used to target out-of-towners? And is this going to be operationalized against communities of color? Those were the primary concerns that people had. Um, there was also a backdrop of like, well, you know, the privacy concerns, like whether or not you had a right to operate on the roadway and no one could record you or videograph um, your car or you personally uh, doing something wrong and who would hold that data. There's a lot of other externalities associated with the technology that people wanted to handle on. Mm -hmm. um, and so over the years, I, I listened to a lot of those conversations. We were experiencing something in New Haven though, Paul, right? Like we, we were feeling this in a different way. At the Capitol, we we're having conversations about, is this right or wrong? How do we utilize technology? How shouldn't we utilize technology? Is this a privacy concern? Is this generating revenues? We were watching remarkable levels of traffic violence in our city. Um, we were on a on a more than annual basis seeing real tragedies occur on our streets with the prime example of people running red lights, people speeding, 
uh, communities being sort of shut down by the amount of uh, people who are just speeding through without any regard to who lived there, the communities. Uh, and that was not a racial thing. I hear this you more hear in the black community, lower income than other places about how nervous they feel in the street from the people speeding through. That's right. And so we're experiencing this very acutely in New Haven. Is, in there a way, any number to, is there a way to quantify that increase? Or the level of violence we were seeing on our streets? I don't know that I have specific New Haven data at top of mind, but I do know um, in the last few years, this has been become a Connecticut problem and a national issue. Uh, but we're experiencing this Connecticut. Connecticut last year, 2022, was the deadliest year in Connecticut's roadways in the last 35 years. And that comes after 2021, which was then the deadliest year, and 2020, which was then the deadliest year. So mm. we've, we've experienced remarkable increases in fatalities on our roadways. 2023 is setting up to, again, be the deadliest year in Connecticut history. Why is that happening? Uh, I mean, people want to attribute some of this to like post-pandemic. The social norms are sort of... Uh, out the window and people are operating without regard to anyone else's concerns. It, there, there's more factors to this. One, we're driving larger vehicles, much larger vehicles than we used Wasn't to. Was stopping for a while if you wanted to like cut back on gas or not? I, I, I mean, I, anecdotally, that was what you would hear. But the average passenger vehicle in the early 2000s was a Toyota Camry. The average passenger vehicle in 2023 is a Ford F-150, right? Mm. Just the structural change on average of what... Um, the most co common and popular cars are means that when you uh, approach an intersection nationally or in, in Connecticut nationally and so so when you have an accident a much larger heavier vehicle that are operating at much higher speeds which is also true we we've been able to identify that on our roadways here in Connecticut the average travel average travel speeds uh, up the uptick was incredible post pandemic we're evaluating that on our highways mostly um, but if you hit somebody or another vehicle going 25 miles per hour in a Toyota Camry, the chances of being a, a serious or significant or fatal injury are remarkably low compared to what happens when you hit another individual or car going 45 miles per hour in a Ford F-150. Mm -hmm. You add in the level of distractions both on board and in hand, like people looking at their GPS on their, on their screens rather than looking at the road ahead of them, checking uh, text messages or telephone calls on their phone. You, you have a remarkably deadly combination um, that's happening on our roadways. And, 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 and frankly, it's something beyond the ability of our local police departments themselves to handle. Like you can't hire enough police officers, nor don't, do I think we'd want to, to address this issue. There's, there's got to be some use of technology. We're, to get we're to talking to Roland Lamar, state rep, who just had a big victory in the session that ended last week. A bill he's been pushing in some form since 2011 passed to have automatic, well, it was always allowed, but this promotes and makes it easier for municipalities to put automatic speed and red light cameras. It was not, I mean, I know there's some disagreement on this issue. There wasn't a single community anywhere in the state that had developed automated enforcement because they did not think there was statutory allowance for it at the state So was this level. enabling legislation? It has sets rules for it. Yes, this, we set guidelines and rules uh, for communities on their own to develop uh, automated But the state had put those cameras up. We had the pilot, right, on state roads. So starting in 2021, as part of another bill that I'd worked on that established this Vision Zero Council that made ultimately these recommendations. And it didn't come from me, which helped this year. They didn't come from me. They came from um, a nonpartisan uh, multi-agency effort that we established in 2021 called the Vision Zero Council. That was that the goal of that is to eliminate all traffic fatalities 
essentially saying that zero is the allowable, acceptable number that we should expect on our roadways. Um, they, they've proffered a series of recommendations, all included in this bill. Some of them, I think, are incredible. They've not gotten any attention, um, but will we'll yield far fewer deaths as well. And part of that process was to allow local communities to identify the most dangerous intersections in town. Mm-hmm. analyze that data, collect that data, analyze it, make recommendations for the state department of transportation's approval about where cameras would go, collect data of who is getting ticketed, the revenue collected, which we limit. We put down at a, a $50. Yeah. Um, why so small? So there was a great, uh, I had a constituent concern early on and they wanted me to look at evidence of violations in other communities namely European communities that would target an individual um, who is of very modest means and they'd issue a $50 ticket or they would uh, look at their income and issue $10,000 speeding tickets. We have, I'm a, they were giving me this example of, a, I think, in a Scandinavian country where a multi-billionaire received a $10,000 speeding ticket. I like the concept of it. I like the construct of it. Um, it violated every other advocacy basis concerns about... Yeah, I, had, I had the ACLU telling me they didn't want us to accumulate that much individual data and in order to run that type of program i know it makes it complicated it makes it very complicated to the point that i have to have a private company having access to your income data to determine how much the ticket was going to be so rebecca sweeney goddard says congratulations roland on many years of fighting for this issue thank you for listening so the bill passed what is so the bill so the, the criticism was that we could already do this and you said no municipality believed they could without the statutory guidance and approval for municipality and do we get to keep the money? Yes, we get to keep the money, but identifying that as a concern over the last few years, a number of communities felt like one is going to be operationalized against them. They used real examples from across the country of where this technology had been utilized against communities to raise revenue. That was put up in areas where they expected the least political pushback. The dollars uh. collected would be utilized to support uh, investments in a local community or to lower the mill rate. And, and the community that was most impacted would not see a direct uh, benefit in any way. So, so we crafted this very specifically to address that concern. Keep the, keep the fines low. Try to change behavior, not collect revenue. We want to pay off the program, right? We don't want this to be a net loss for communities. But every dollar that you collect in addition to those that are used to pay off the program has to be utilized for traffic safety in the impacted area. Mm-hmm. So if I say, and I'll use, I'm, I'm very specifically going to use locations in my district that I think are appropriate for this technology. If I say we want to look at the area in and around the hospital um, and determine that that's a good location for speed cameras or red light cameras. Is there two... Hospital has uh, two the locations. hospital where, like, like where my Lorraine off that, like with, with a series yeah, by Yonder Haven in the hill. Yeah, that's right. Like that location. And I want to say that's a good location for red light cameras or speed cameras. I need those dollars to be dedicated to improving that intersection, improving road safety more generally in that Does that mean speed humps, narrowing? uh... We don't determine how they do it, but they have to prove that that's how they used it or else the program will not get reauthorized. Now, this doesn't roll out to 2026? I saw that article. That's not true. Um, The guidelines have to be issued by January 1st of 2024, beginning in the... um, Sorry, January 1st, 2024, uh, DOT will proffer those guidelines. They'll submit those to local com- communities. Communities can start developing their program, start meeting with individual vendors now, start developing their own program. 
Um, but they're going to have to follow the guidelines that DOT adopts. And it's beginning January 1st of 2024, they can begin uh, starting to develop their program. So what's the earliest we could see these cameras? I, I would say mid-2024. A year from now, realistically, is the earliest you'll see them. But it can happen then, you think? Yeah. Because we have a movement in New Haven that really keeps people honest. Yeah. So I want to ask the, Roland Lamar, who's here on Dateline New Haven, about the new... I'm not going to give you the whole name because it's boring, but it's called the Vision Zero Bill that's going to allow us to have automated speed cameras. So, Roland, what changed? You told me about how reality changed over those years. There were more fatalities, faster vehicles, people getting more upset about the carnage. How did you make, and you talked about how you listened to legitimate concerns and addressed them. What made this happen over time? Was it grassroots people organizing the growing Safe Streets movement in New Haven that becomes politically important so they when they write letters to the legislators show up at a hearing. Is that what got it over? Was it behind the scenes having experienced legislators like yourself who've been up for years, have um, become a committee chair, know how to get legislation through, have private conversations with colleagues who might stand in the way? Or was it just reality changing outside your doors? It's, a, it's all of the above, frankly. And I think oftentimes we give legislators too much credit uh, or blame for a specific bill passing. I'm only able to get this done because of a lot of the factors you identify. Uh, frankly, being a committee chair and chair of transportation committee helps a lot. Yes. And it takes you a long time, particularly in the house to accumulate enough, um, seniority and standing to, uh, become a chair of a large committee like that an influential committee like that. And so that, that does take time. That did take a lot of effort. Um, and it does take hours and hours of individual conversations with other legislators from across the state who have varying degrees of interest or, um, understanding of this type of technology, frankly, in communities that would never even consider it, I have to tell them the story of New Haven, what's happening on our roadways in Connecticut, and make the case for them to vote for something that may in no way ever... Did it work? It did. It like, did. give an example of somebody. Uh, I, I don't want to betray private conversations, but you saw 104 legislators in the House vote for this bill this year. I couldn't get 11 years ago. I couldn't get up to 77. And the communities that were most uh, willing to come along on, on this bill were folks who started to see a growing pedestrian advocacy um, and safe streets advocacy in their community. So you need that advocacy base, people who are reminding them. So in words, it spread to the suburbs. Yeah, it spread to the suburbs. And, and you saw that, again, the traffic data, the tragedies that happen across our state are impacting families um, um, and communities throughout Connecticut now in a way that it, it, we knew in New Haven was true but wasn't being experienced uh, at 169 communities. And, so, and frankly, like I, I got to say, the advocacy organizations that had generally been in opposition in the past. ACLU. ACLU, name, NAACP. NAACP um, have been the, the primary organizations opposed to this. If I don't listen, like I'm generally a legislator who is on the same side as the ACLU and the NAACP. And if they think I'm wrong about something, it's going to make me question if I'm right. Right. And frankly, I go back to the table and start looking at what those concerns are. I look at every year of testimony they've ever submitted, and I see if I can't address every single issue. In the end, they still didn't come on board. No. At the end of the day, they still didn't say, we support this legislation. But I think every realistic concern that I could address is addressed in that bill. And I gave a, essentially a escape hatch to the whole program. If something goes wrong or this technology is not being utilized the way it's designed, and if I'm if something happens that I don't see, 
the whole program gets un- you have to go through a reauthorization process in three years after they, you first start. And if you don't have the data to support this, or we think we determine that you're not using it properly, or it's not reducing traffic fatalities in the location, or you're not investing those dollars the way that we tell you you have to, the whole program disappears. So how does it feel, Roland Lamarck, to have succeeded after 12 years on this? It, it, it feels good, right? Like, I mean, I, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. Um, and I took a few years off in between, right? From 2013 to 2021, I don't introduce another camera bill. I focus on a number of other issues I believed in, uh, another other pedestrian safety, traffic safety related issues. I focus on a number of fair housing issues, uh, national popular vote. I did the Dreamers bill uh, in 2016. Um, so a number of other passions of mine that I care about legislatively that I got to work on. Uh, but I really put a lot more effort into this again, starting in 2021. And, and I think the amount of hours, really, frankly, I, I calculated at like 250 hours worth of time over the last few years on this bill alone. Um, I, had, I have incredible staff, uh, Transportation Committee. I have a legislative attorney, uh, Katrina How does it feel? You go into politics, you devote your life to yeah. politics, you work on campaigns, you work on bills, you're committee chair. What does it feel to work so long on a bill and get it through? It, it, it's Honestly, you start thinking, okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? Uh, so... I really want to hyper-focus in on safe routes to school. So as, as a transportation committee mm. chair, I want to make sure how we talk about getting kids to and from school on a daily basis is more at the center of this, like sidewalk installations, bus improvements, uh, street narrowings. Like, How do we really focus this investment and this time in and around schools? Uh, I want to focus a little bit more, and, and like this is, this is something that um, it nationally is happening. Uh, like electrifying our bus fleet. How do I uh, make sure that we have the requisite number of dollars and the technologies in place in places like New Haven where high levels of asthma... Are you uh, talking about CT? Because you've started that with CT Transit. We did. Yeah, we started with CT Transit. It's going to be really expensive. The timeline's a little too slow. We're looking at 2035 before full implementation across the state. I want to see if we can't move that up um, to just decrease the, the amount of uh, negative health How about delineators on bike lanes? Uh, delineators are, they get knocked down the first day, those little du- rubber ducky poles. I mean, it is it is definitely a stopgap measure, right? Like, well, that's how they built it. Edu- Look, why did it take so many years for us to get that bike lane? It's still only half built, and its delineators get knocked down. Yeah. I, I, I thought that, it was going to be a separated concrete thing that you got, you know, a, a barrier that has a bike lane. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, that's something on the engineering side at the local level. I, 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 I trust Giovanni Zinn went through an exhaustive process to try and get that up and going. Um, I, I don't know ultimately what the determination is, but all of the evidence suggests that delineators are like they're they're a nice way to show that there's a separated line, but provide zero protection. Roland Lamar, do you get to take a deep breath? You talking about the next street hill to climb? Oh no, I, I I'm always focused on the next thing. All right, well congratulations on 12 year fight to get state legislation to promote the use of red light cameras to become automated in our city. You think it's going to save lives? It will definitely save lives. And that's what it's about, right? That's right. Thank you for joining us, Ron Lamar, on Dateline New Haven. Thank you. Thanks, Harry Droz, for working the controls. We're going to take it out, the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.